Welcome to FanR Podcast, a series of podcasts featuring a variety of topics, issues, and events relating to the nuclear and radiological sectors in the UAE and across the globe. Nuclear safety culture is the core values and behaviors resulting from a collective commitment by leaders and individuals to emphasize safety over competing goals, to ensure the protection of people and the environment. With more than 400 nuclear power plants in operation globally, and with more countries showing an interest in pursuing nuclear energy programs, it is imperative that nuclear operators and regulators maintain a culture of safety in their organizations. In this edition of the Fanner Podcast, we speak to Nick Shaw, the Principal Nuclear Safety Inspector at the UK's Office for Nuclear Regulation, about the importance of safety culture in the nuclear sector. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Shaw, uh, for this uh, interview opportunity. Uh, within the nuclear sector, safety culture is a major topic of interest, and yet different people may have different understandings of the term safety culture and what that entails. So could you tell us briefly from your experience what we really mean by safety culture? Well, thank you. Um, well, on the surface, this seems like a simple question, but on reflection, the complexity and ambiguity surrounding safety culture makes this question challenging to answer. It's easy to observe the artifacts of a safety culture, such as how people behave or how much focus a procedure gives to safety, but these are not enough to understand safety culture. So each of us has beliefs and underlying values which drive our behavior. And this happens mostly unconsciously. Often we don't stop to think about why we act like we do in each situation. So when we work alongside others, we're influenced by group norms. We like to conform, to fit in. So when the group um, behaves in ways that is conducive to good safety outcomes, individuals in that group are more likely to act similarly. So if they then take this upper level to a whole organization, individuals and teams tend to be influenced by organizational norms. And if these norms are conducive to good safety outcomes, then we have the foundations of a healthy safety culture. I'd like to ask, so isn't it like a, a basically like a chicken and egg kind of scenario at that case? Like if you have policy being informed by the culture, the organizational culture and the organizational cultures also. And so how do you, if you have an organization where that's not already enshrined in the culture, like how, how, what comes first basically is what I'm concerned with. So when you start, you know, as a small organization, you don't have many staff and, um, what you need to do is obviously build up from the ground up. So it's, you haven't got necessarily a culture as you're setting out as a new entrant. So it's very important for those organizations to develop a robust management system that meets international expectations. But you've also got to think about as you recruit people and build your organization, how do you want people to behave in that organization? What sort of people do we want to recruit into that organization so that we can establish group norms and ways of working that are conducive to a good safety culture? So I suggest that when an organization has a good safety culture, the ways in which teams and individuals behave in any given situation, you know, as such that safety is prioritized over competing objectives. So people don't necessarily know why they behave like this. It just happens because they've become conditioned to behave in such a way. Now, Edgar Schein um, calls this 
deeply held assumptions about accepted ways of working. And I tend to agree with that definition. So in uh, recent years, we've seen increased public concern about nuclear safety, especially in the wake of incidents like uh, Fukushima and Chernobyl. How has the nuclear industry adapted its safety culture to regain public trust and prevent such events from happening again? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the nuclear industry can only continue to operate if it maintains public trust. And events such as Fukushima and Chernobyl, both international nuclear event scale level seven events, the most severe, have consequences that cross borders. So the public are rightly concerned of events of this scale. But I think that governments, regulatory bodies and nuclear organisations have made great efforts to learn from these events to ensure an event of this scale will never happen again. But to regain public trust, it's essential that the nuclear industry not only learns from these events, but is also open and transparent with its stakeholders, including the public, in how it's gone about this. I also think that international organisations such as the International Atomic Energy Agency and the World Association of Nuclear Operators have important roles to play in enhancing public trust. And at national levels, the regulatory authorities such as FANAR and United Arab Emirates have a hugely important role. I, think, I also think that society expects the nuclear industry to be regulated to the highest standards by a competent regulator that is also open and transparent with its stakeholders, including the public. You know, that's why, for example, within the UK, you know, we make most of our guidance documents available on our website. We publish some of the findings of our regulatory work, including annual evaluations of duty order performance in the Chief Nuclear Inspector's report of Great Britain's nuclear industry. You know, we also meet periodically with um, stakeholders, including non-governmental organisations, many of which are anti-nuclear. You know, and we're open and transparent with them about the industry's performance and how we regulate them. All right. So... Nuclear energy, especially in recent years with you know, the still ongoing energy crisis, is often seen as a vital tool in both the fight against climate change and allowing countries to meet their energy demand. But it's also perceived as a risky or relatively risky form of energy. Can you explain how a strong safety culture can reconcile these concerns and make nuclear power a safer and more acceptable energy option? Well, since the concept of safety culture first emerged following the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, the international nuclear community has made great strides in tackling this complex subject. And at the same time, academics on all continents have undertaken a great deal of research to establish what most influences a positive safety culture and what benefits can be realized by strengthening safety culture in organizations. So we now know that a positive safety culture is associated with positive safety outcomes. And we know what we need to do to strengthen safety cultures. So we've got a great deal of knowledge and tools at our disposal. But what we must guard against is complacency, you know, be it at plant, site, national or international levels. A period without a major nuclear event should not be viewed as a reason to celebrate because history tells us that the next accidents can creep upon us unexpectedly. You know, we must maintain a sense of chronic unease and strive to continually achieve higher standards whilst at the same time developing capabilities to respond to and recover from unexpected events. So by doing this, you know, we can keep society safe and harness the benefits of nuclear energy for many years to come. And uh, safety culture can be subject to different interpretations and understandings in uh, different countries. In your opinion, do you think there is a need to standardize the nuclear safeties, the nuclear sector's safety culture across borders? 
It's an interesting question, and I would expect there'd be various people who've got various different views on this. I mean, the International Atomic Energy Agency has made great efforts to codify a common understanding of safety culture through its harmonized safety culture model, which describes the traits and attributes commonly found in organizations with strong safety cultures. So this model, which is published on the IEA's website, currently as a working document, will, form, will shortly be formally incorporated into IEA's guidance. But of course, every nation has a long history which predates the discovery of nuclear energy by many thousands of years. So as such, national cultures have a large influence on organisational cultures, which in turn have an influence on safety cultures. I think it's therefore difficult to standardise safety cultures across borders, but nevertheless, it's incumbent upon each nation to consider what attributes of their national cultures are conducive to good safety outcomes and which attributes of their national cultures could be problematic and to consider how best to resolve this. So, you know, in answer to your question, I think there's a need for each nation to consider how their national cultures influence safety cultures and to act where this may be problematic for safety. I think that international standards and guides have an important role in this. However, standardising safety cultures across borders may not be easily achievable and efforts to do so may also lead to unintended consequences. So this needs to be addressed carefully with respect for customs, traditions and national norms. So uh, the UAE's nuclear energy program, encompassing both the operator, nuclear operator and its regulator, features a diverse group of nationalities. How can such uh, multinational organizations maintain a culture of safety considering linguistic and you know cultural differences? Well, I don't think the challenge is, um, is completely unique to the United Arab Emirates. So within the United Kingdom, for example, there are foreign nationals where English is not their first language working on large nuclear projects. And I'm sure this is repeated elsewhere in the world. But I think it's important to recognize that cultural differences exist, to understand the differences, but also to embrace the diversity that this brings, whilst at the same time being aware of any potential safety implications. And so whilst national cultures are deeply rooted and shape people's personalities and their behaviors, I also think that people from diverse nations working together will, in time, start to conform to group norms. So it's therefore important for both the operator and the regulator to ensure that the group norms that influence people are the norms that they want to see within the organization, those that result in safe operations. So activities such as establishing corporate values, setting behavioral standards, holding people to account for meeting these, providing coaching for those that may require additional help are all components of the strategic human resource management system. You know, and when done well, they can help minimize any adverse impacts of cultural differences by developing commonly practiced and accepted ways of working. Many organizations are investing resources in developing procedures, conducting workshops, and generally spreading awareness uh, regarding the matter of safety culture among their employees. Yet, these efforts do not always bear their intended results. So what do you think are the most common causes for why a safety culture might not materialize despite such efforts? Well, in my view, the simple answer is leadership. Safety culture really does start at the top. 
and too often safety culture improvement initiatives are led, left to a middle ranking safety professional to manage. Safety culture spans all aspects of organisational life from how people are inducted into the organisation to how they are rewarded or how they are held to account. If the most senior officer in the organisation, whether it be a director general or a chief executive officer, is not driving the safety culture improvement efforts, then in my experience, they will have limited success. So the best CEOs are the cultural guru. They don't need to employ a safety culture expert because they recognise that they are personally responsible for leading the change in the culture and they educate themselves on how humans behave in organisational settings. Excellent CEOs come into the office in the morning and actively think, what things can I do today to create the culture I want to see? Who can I publicly thank for doing good work? Who can I hold to account for not meeting the required standard? They also set their direct reports, these same expectations, and hold them to account for meeting them. Now, I recall one CEO who was very passionate about carrying out leader in the field. So leader in the field where leaders go out into the plant, meet the workforce, etc. And he would spend a significant portion of his time out on the plant, meeting with the workforce and learning about how activities are really carried out. But he also set an expectation that his lead team, his direct reports, also carry out leader in the field. And at the start of every lead team meeting, he would ask his team, when did you last go out onto the plant? You know, where did you go? Who did you speak to? What did you learn? And by doing that, he was setting the expectation, you know, that he's for Foggy's lead team and monitoring them to make sure that they were actually doing what he, what he requested of them. But he also ensured that his lead team cascaded this expectation down to their direct reports and held them similarly accountable. And it's this dedication and active commitment from an organization's most senior officer that is required for culture change to happen. And without this, culture change either fails or just does not happen at pace. One more question uh, to close this off. Why does, after all this talk about safety culture, why does the nuclear sector in particular seem to garner the most attention regarding safety culture compared to other industries such as, say, oil and gas? And do you think the nuclear sector's focus on this topic of safety culture might, because, you know, we're talking about it so much as uh, safety culture, safety culture. Do you think that might counterintuitively lead the public and other stakeholders to have doubts regarding the sector's safety? Well, I think safety culture as a concept emerged after the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. So it's been associated with nuclear energy since day one. You know, it came from a nuclear accident, the concept was first um, developed, was first reported upon by the IAEA. Other industries have made great efforts to understand and improve their safety cultures over the past 35, 36 years. So it's no longer a term associated with just the nuclear industry. But the nuclear industry is, however, the most hazardous of all industries. And therefore the expectations we place on ourselves and that which the public expects of us are high and rightly so. Now, nuclear accidents do not occur very frequently, thankfully, but when they do, they're international headline news. And the nature of the hazard, radiation, which is invisible, but very impactful, also creates fear in the public. But like radiation, safety culture is invisible, but again, very impactful. So I think that the nuclear sector needs to continue to focus on safety culture, but also be open and transparent with stakeholders into what action it is taking to improve safety. Now, the nuclear sector and its regulators should be very proud of the efforts that are undertaken to improve safety culture. 
I mean, only a few weeks ago, I was at an IAEA technical meeting in Vienna and was impressed by the efforts of operators and regulators from the many nations present to improve safety cultures. You know, so the international nuclear community should be proud of its efforts it's making to improve safety culture and should communicate this progress widely. But at the same time, it should not become complacent because history tells us that nuclear accidents are rare, but, when, but, when, but that they are preventable. And we do have the knowledge and expertise to anticipate and prevent them. But we, what we need to do is remain vigilant and never become too comfortable with how we perform. All right, thank you, Mr. Shaw, for a very insightful discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Fanar Podcast. Join us next time to hear more about the latest developments in the nuclear and radiological sectors in the UAE and across the globe.